Providing for your family is a top priority. But what happens when you need affordable health care? Christian Healthcare Ministries could save you up to 40% today. As a member, you can choose your provider without network restrictions. Sign up at your convenience with our anytime enrollment. Join a Christian community that supports each other's medical expenses, offering peace of mind as you prioritize what's most important. Enroll now at yourchm.org. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Tammy Bruce. I'm Steve Ducey, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, June 8th, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The nationwide shortage of baby formula has moms doing what moms do best, handling it, helping each other get their hands on the kinds of formula their newborns need with swaps and donations, coordinating both on and off social media. I was so frustrated with how everything has been managed. And so I kind of took it upon myself. Well, if if they're not going to fix it, I'm going to at least use this platform that I have and see if I can help a couple moms. I'm Dave Anthony. A new caravan of migrants is now headed to the U.S. border. But it's going to be a longer, more grueling trip this time. That is a caravan that is obviously going to have trouble in the triple-digit heat traveling, and they're having to walk much of this. They can't catch rides and hitchhike on the back of cargo trucks like they did three years ago because Mexico has since passed a law that says they can't do that. And I'm Greg Jarrett. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Just five months ago, my now 18-month-old daughter took her last gulp of formula, Elicare formula, made by Abbott, the same company whose lab shutdown caused the current shortage. It's a specialty formula. Elicare was our last stop after trying half a dozen other kinds. I sit here now as she eats apples and granola bars, thankful that I didn't have to deal with this formula shortage, missing it by just a few months. But so many other mothers are living in a constant state of panic. We are in a crisis. And there are moms that are desperate. I know just multiple parents that are literally begging, please, I need one can. While the shortage was being predicted in February, President Biden said he didn't really hear about it until later. I became aware of this problem sometime in after April, in early April, about how intense it was. And so we did everything in our power from that point on, and that's all I can tell you right now. Since then, the administration has had formula flown in from Europe and Australia. In February, Abbott Labs shut down production at its plant in Michigan after two infants died of a bacterial infection. While bacteria was found at the Abbott plant, Abbott says it was found in the non-product contact area of the facility and that the strains found did not match those that infected the babies. The shutdown, though, of even just one plant is a problem, as there are only four manufacturers that make most of the country's baby formula. Abbott announced over the weekend they are restarting production after meeting initial FDA requirements and Elicare formula should be available around June 20th. Yeah, so my experience has been almost 100% of the mothers that I have heard from, and I have over 1,600 emails, are moms of preemie babies or medically fragile babies. Lucy Riles runs the online community Life of Mom and is a mother of four herself. She helps coordinate sales and formula swaps across the country. And it's always the same, like 10 formulas they're needing. It's always something hypoallergenic, something sensitive or gentle for 
you know, sensitive stomachs, GI issues. So a lot of these moms, like I have not gotten a single email from just a mom wanting free formula. Like it's all been, I am in desperate need. My baby can only take this specific type of formula. I can't find it anywhere. I've driven 200 miles and these poor mothers, I mean, my heart breaks for them because personally my first child was born with a heart defect and needed open heart surgery at three days old and as hard as I tried to pump I could not produce the stress the trauma of it all was just so much to bear and what I think is really specific about the moms that I am helping and I've proudly been able to connect over 500 moms to other moms with exactly the formula they need. So, um, Lucy, tell yeah. me about, tell me about now what you are doing, because the, I see on Facebook what you're doing. You are coordinating and sort of, you're like almost like a middleman of sorts. Yeah. Like this is very <laughs> grassroots and you, yes. you are sort of connecting a woman in like Michigan with like a mom in Washington state, basically. Absolutely. To kind of take it back from day one, you know, I, I had heard about the formula shortage on the news, but it wasn't until I walked into my CVS in Tennessee outside of Nashville and there was no formula. And I just like my heart broke. I'm like, oh, my God, like this is really happening. And so I just kind of put out a video on my online community, Life of Mom. It's got over 425,000 followers. And as soon as this happened, I was on like zeroed in on one mission and that was to feed the babies. I was so frustrated with how everything has been managed. And so I kind of took it upon myself. Well, I, if, if they're not gonna fix it, I'm going to at least use this platform that I have and see if I can help a couple moms. Uh, two weeks later, 600 moms later, it feels tremendously good. I don't think I've ever done, besides my kids, I don't think I've ever done anything more important in my life, more meaningful in my life. And to be able to receive an email from a desperate mom and it be so desperate and so heavy, because they just, they've been scammed. They've been price gouged. I mean, these moms are so desperate and to be able to say, Hey, I found this mom, Jody in Indiana, and she's sending you three cans of formula. It restores my faith in humanity at a time when I have been very disheartened with the state of the world. You know, talk to me, Lucy, about what you've heard and also what your opinion is, I guess, of the response to this. I mean, we know what happened, right? This is a, a Abbott Labs had to shut down um, there right. was an investigation. It turned out the I'm not sure if the bacteria they said the bacterial strain didn't match the one in which where the infants died, the two babies had died. But still, there was you know, they had to investigate. The FDA was investigating to see what went wrong here. But what do you make of I guess how, what do you make of the response? Because the, the president himself said he didn't hear about this until April. There had been warnings about this in February that there was a formula shortage on the horizon. Uh, so what, what, have you, what have you made of the response and how it's been handled? I, I've seen on your page and others, the frustration, like we live in the United States, like how did, it, how did this happen? Yeah, I mean, this should have never happened in the United States and for weeks, I just spewed such frustration 
with how the administration handled this early on, being warned back in February, and then to see only now starting actions. And it's, you know, I'm trying to not go into too much of a um, a rant about my frustrations because every time I get these emails from moms, I'm mad for them. I'm sad for them. I'm frustrated for them because this shouldn't be happening. And so I kind of channeled that energy of frustration and anger into helping moms because I'm like, if you're not going to do it and you're not going to use your platforms and your power and your influence to save these babies, well, I'm going to do at least as much of a part as I can from from my little, you know, Facebook page. And I got to say, to be able to use it finally for something that is genuinely so good and pure and honest, it's just it feels good to finally use Facebook for like a super positive thing. <laughs> um, so you had been so, using it for positive stuff b- before then, but I, I hear what you're saying. Oh, for it, sure. Yeah. For sure. But, you know, it's it's this has been the most meaningful mission I've ever done. And I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of the community. None of this is possible without the boots on the ground, the moms that are willing to do the grunt work, who are willing to go to the stores, get the formula, go to the post office, ship it out. But it is important that you guys know that this isn't somewhere something where I'm like, you know, taking from local moms that need that formula. It really is. I'm finding it's the same states that are sending the formula to the same states that do not have any formula. You know, I'm fortunate enough that I've been able to help a lot of them. Formula Finder Facebook groups have popped up for different cities and towns, but not everything is being coordinated through social media. Some existing nonprofits like Moms Helping Moms in New Jersey, which started out helping lower income mothers get diapers more than a decade ago, is now helping out with formula as well. Megan Deaton is a co-founder of the group, and she says they work with social service agencies that make requests on behalf of families. My understanding is that this is just an issue that is going across every socioeconomic level of mothers and and fathers and caretakers. It's really just affecting everyone. Usually we work with underserved families and, you know, families in need. And we have seen even people who, who aren't necessarily what we would consider quote unquote in need for what we do, people who have the money to go out and buy formula, they just can't find it. I see on social media, like Facebook, for example, they have like Formula Finder Detroit, Formula Finder Fredericksburg. Um, The grassroots efforts here to coordinate and help, uh, like these swaps that moms are doing, like somebody in California has, you know, Nutramagen and somebody in Michigan needs it. You guys are essentially doing that on like an even bigger scale, right? I mean, we're trying to and we're seeing that even in our own personal communities, our whole team you know, we all live in different towns in this area and every community Facebook group, you'll see that you'll see families helping families or like people taking pictures in the store that they're in. If they're in a Target or a grocery specific grocery store, I've seen photos of the shelves with the different brands of formula saying, hey, at 915 a.m., CVS has this much formula on the shelf. If you need it, come get it. I think everybody is really pitching in to help each other out. Yeah, there's almost nothing as bonding <laughs> as going through that that newborn exactly. infant stage um, with other really mothers. Takes, yeah, it's taking it takes a village to a whole new level. 
Um, you guys started doing what you do with diapers, right, before the pandemic. What did you see during the pandemic? How did things change from 2019 to 2020? We've been doing this since 2011, and our main oh. product that we give out is diapers. We are essentially a diaper bank, but we do give out clothing and some essential baby gear, like high chairs, strollers, and also period products. And, you know, in 2020, our numbers skyrocketed. As you could see, you know, in spring of 2020, the supply was not there. And even like our donations coming in decreased so much, we couldn't get the diapers to give out to people, um, which is not the same, I think, you know, as what's happening now. But um, the need rose immensely and it, it is still up there. It's not going away anytime soon. I, I do see a lot of people who post about needing formula, like they're panicked, but they're also a little bit outraged that they're even going through this. Like I, I read one mother write that she was opening up her last can and she knew that when that ran out, she was going to have to go back out on the hunt. Are you having those kinds of conversations? Are you seeing those kinds of conversations? And I guess, what do you tell moms when you talk about that? I mean, I think we're seeing, you know, the same ones you are. I've seen those stories, too, where families are going out late at night to try to find the 24-hour stores, you know, and hitting store after store after store to find one can of formula to get them through. And it's it's terrifying. And I think everybody is outraged and everybody is puzzled. How did we get to this point in the United States? And it's bringing to light, like, why are there so few manufacturers of such an important product? And hopefully something will change. It's just nice to see that they're, you know, at least trying to let up on some of the the import rules and stuff like that. But I don't know that it's going to happen fast enough. And I, my heart goes out to every family that is experiencing this. Finally, you, I mean, you run a nonprofit. You have your sort of network in place to a certain degree. And we see these grassroots efforts on social media to help. But what is your advice at this point to moms or to people who are doing what you're doing, maybe in a smaller scale, who are trying to help coordinate? Is it just to keep fighting, keep doing this um, and hold out? Or what would you tell other people around the country to do right now? I think the best thing I've seen really is these community groups and the community Facebook groups and you know the movements that you were talking about earlier of just sharing knowledge and sharing resources of where to find it. We got to help each other out. And I think that's the best way. Find a mom's group, you know, find a group of neighbors and keep an eye out. And if you see it for somebody else that you know that's looking for them, let them know. Pass on the message. Megan Deaton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This is Greg Jarrett with your Fox News commentary coming up. President Biden goes to Los Angeles today to join other regional leaders at a summit for the Americas, where migration will be one of several issues discussed. Just days after a big new caravan started a long trek to the U.S. border on a stormy day. 
This for us is nothing. It can rain. It can thunder. Nobody will stop us. Thousands left Tapachulo in southern Mexico on Monday. A majority of them are women and children, and most are from Venezuela. You can't live in that country anymore. There are also migrants from Haiti who expect the president will let them stay in the U.S. when they arrive. He promised the the Asian community he will help them. By lifting a Title 42 COVID-era Trump policy that has kept some migrants from staying in the U.S. for health reasons. But now we need him to keep his promise. That policy, though, remains in place by a federal judge's order after some states sued to block lifting it, fearing an even bigger surge of migrants. Republican Congressman Buddy Carter tells Fox. The way you stop it, according to the Border Patrol agents, is first of all, you build the wall. Secondly, you keep Title 42 in place. Thirdly, you enforce the remain in Mexico policy. And fourthly, and perhaps most importantly, there needs to be consequences for these people who are crossing the border. They are breaking our laws. Though it could take that new caravan a month or more to finally reach the U.S. border. That is a caravan that is obviously going to have trouble in the triple-digit heat traveling. Griff Jenkins is a Fox News national correspondent. We caught up with him just north of the border in Rio Grande Valley, Texas. And they're having to walk much of this. They can't catch rides and hitchhike on the back of cargo trucks like they did three years ago because Mexico has since passed a law that says they can't do that. This caravan is very large. The organizer, Luis Villagran, who's been organizing for years. He was there when I first met him in 2019. Remember, I traveled 7,000 miles with that caravan three years ago. It went all the way from San Pedro Sula, Honduras, through Guatemala, through Tapachula, where this last one began in Mexico, all the way up to the town of Piedras Negras, west of where I am in the RGV, and they crossed into Eagle Pass. That caravan was only about 6,000 migrants. Villagran says this one is in excess of 10,000. And just earlier today, Dave, he told me that they have 3,000, more than 3,000 minors in this group, some 5,000 women. He says there's 126 pregnant women in it, and there are 67 handicapped individuals. But Vigran says they're very determined, and he's well aware that the composition of this caravan is largely made up of women and children, and those who will be seen favorably by the administration, he believes if they get up to the U.S. border and do ultimately cross, but as you note, it'll be quite a long time before they get here, obviously unable to move very fast. Yeah, and you've talked about how you went on three years ago, that long journey. What are they going to go through? You, you said Tapachula is where they started. You've done this, so what kind of terrain are they going Is it all kinds of different things as they make their way? They're going to go through small towns in Mexico, certainly in southern Mexico, Dave, where for years migrants have been making this trek in much smaller numbers, and the people there are kinder to migrants. But the numbers have become so large that the little towns that used to have their churches bring out food and water have really dried up. Those resources aren't as readily available by by the local residents because they're getting overwhelmed with the amount of migrants coming through. So they're going to have very little help 
help from locals while they're walking, not driving through incredible heat. When they started, it was a remnants of a hurricane, tropical storm passing through. So that was very difficult. However, they do seem determined. Now, one of the things, in addition to like heat exhaustion and hunger and thirst that they're going to run into, they're going to run into numerous opportunities, I suspect, based on previous experience of the Mexican officials trying to wait them out, trying to wear them down and then broker a deal to say, well, we'll give you, say, uh, a six month uh, work visa pass and you have to stay in certain areas confined to southern Mexico to get them to stop. That's sort of the game that I believe the Mexican officials are already playing. And hopefully the Mexican officials think they'll ultimately be able to get them to to voluntarily stop. Do they have a, a daily place that they are going to plan to stop all the time? Do they have tents? Do they just sleep out in the open? How do they do this every day? You know, it's it's a great question, Dave, and it's really just an enormous homeless encampment that travels. They have their belongings. Many have makeshift tents that they set up, and they have the various towns they get to. The problem is, you know, the organizer has to decide which town they will stop at based on the traditional route, but also just how far they can physically make it dealing with whatever elements they run into that day. Yeah, how many miles from Tapachula to the border, and how many days do you think this might take before they could get there. So they've got, you know, some 3,000 miles at a minimum. And at the rate they're going, you're talking about uh, a month or more of traveling. Now, you will possibly see some of these uh, various Mexican states take sympathy upon them and through Catholic charities and other, uh, uh, you know, agencies that help out migrants, try and organize buses at the cost of the Mexican state to try and move them to the next uh, northern Mexican state above it. But we haven't seen that develop yet. Okay. Aside from the, the, the caravan, I mean, we continue to have this surge daily across the border. We had uh, about 235 apprehensions in April. We've seen these large numbers ever since uh, the president took office. You, what are you seeing where you are in Texas in the last couple of days across the border? Dave, I've been on the ground for eight straight days in the RGV. It's the heaviest hit, ground zero, for traditionally the heaviest border crossings. And I have been keeping track through my CBP sources who released to me confidential numbers of the number of apprehensions and the number of migrants that have gotten away, meaning they were seen on a camera, Border Patrol and DPS pursued them, but they weren't able to bring them into custody. Since I've been here for eight days, that number of apprehensions is more than 11,000. 800 and for the number of known gotaways it's more than 920 at this very hour and it just shows you in one week the amount of traffic that they're dealing with and what that does in the larger scheme of things to give some context here is it totally overwhelms and preoccupies agents from patrolling and chasing drugs the cartels have such an assembly line efficiency control of our border they're moving the these large groups of family units. Then they organize the higher paying runners who try to evade capture, particularly at nighttime. Meanwhile, when they know and they're watching from the border where I'm standing, they're watching from the other side. They know when the Border Patrol agents are responding to large groups of 100 or more, they send drugs to the east or west of them in hopes of getting that through. So it's really quite a cat and mouse, cat, uh, cat and mouse game. And the cat really is the cartels in many situations. Yeah, you, you said you 
been on the ground. Literally, you were on the ground, right? I mean, you've been seeing the way that they hide, right, in the terrain as they try to come to the U.S., that's right. I went out uh, the last several days, particularly this morning, with DPS working in conjunction with Border Patrol. And they had a group of more than 20 migrants that started running from the river, covered uh, themselves in dark clothes, some in camo with backpacks, mostly single adult males. And they got into the thickest brush that Texas has to offer. And I was literally crawling for more than 30 minutes wow. through thorns ticks, chiggers, where they had a dog working, going underneath these twigs with my phone camera just to show just how difficult this is and the hard work that they're willing to do. We were able to bring all of those migrants miraculously in because there was a helicopter above giving uh, that perspective and then the agents with the dogs on the ground going through the brush where we were and they pretty much were able to surround them and the migrants gave up. But it's just a snapshot of just how difficult this work is for these dedicated men and women of the Border Patrol and Texas DPS as they try and get things under control, full well knowing that the current administration's policies have led directly, we can look at the numbers and say that, to the surge they're dealing with. They don't complain. They just do the best they can every single day. And and I know the other day you also did cross the border yourself. You went to Mexico. You talked to some people who were over in camps waiting to come here, right? And that's a really important part of all of this, Dave, and that is the Mexican border towns in the case of where we are right across from McAllen. And you can hear, by the way, the Border Patrol riverboats firing up in the background because they're working 24 hours a day. So forgive that boat sound, but we're right down here on the front line where they're doing it. And what they're about to patrol, they can see from the riverbank, Dave, they can see the Senda de Vida, the Path of Life migrant shelter, the largest in Reynosa, directly across from McAllen. And the pastor there, Hector Silva, who we talked to, has been running a migrant shelter there for 26 years. He says he's never seen it like this. It's built for about 1,000, and he's got more than 1,500. He had to build a second makeshift shelter, which is a work in progress, but already also has upward of 1,000 migrants. And he says there's 5,000-plus in the city streets of Reynosa who can't get in, and it's a challenge for him because he can't just keep his doors open. He has to have security to keep people out, A, for it getting overrun, and B, because COVID is still a real thing. And he's trying to keep a COVID outbreak from happening inside his shelter where he does very intense screening for that very reason. A final interesting note, when I was in there, I saw migrants from everywhere, from Haiti to Cuba to Venezuela to the traditional Northern Triangle of Central America, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. But I also ran into three Ukrainians and two Russians. Dave? Wow. Ukrainians and Russians? Were they hanging out together? And what's more... They were housed together. I spoke huh. to them, interviewed them, and talked to them with uh, Silva. And I said, how is it you guys are getting along? And they simply said, because we both left our countries because of the war, in the case of the Ukrainians, to get out of it, they say, in the case of the Russians, because they don't agree with the war in Ukraine. And they knew if they stayed, they might be persecuted for it. Well, that is really that is really something. Fox News National Correspondent Griff Jenkins in Rio Grande Valley, Texas. Thanks very much for joining us. Dave, great to be with you.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Greg Jarrett. Jarrett. What's on your mind? President Joe Biden is demanding that Congress act immediately to ban semi-automatic weapons in America, such as the AR-15 that was used in several recent mass shootings. As we grieve the horrific loss of life, it's understandable that emotions are running high. And while emotions often lead to action, those actions are not always lawful. This is Biden's real dilemma. Our current president has a proclivity to assign blame for everything that goes wrong. For years, his favorite boogeyman for gun violence has been the National Rifle Association and weapons manufacturers. As is often the case with Biden, he sought to vilify the incorrect target. His obstacle to gun control measures is that pesky document called the Constitution, specifically the Second Amendment. In the seminal case of District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court validated an individual's right to keep and bear arms under the Second Amendment. Neither the president nor the legislature has the authority to eliminate a constitutional right. That can only be done by amending the Constitution itself. In Heller, the high court cautioned that lawmakers do have the ability to impose reasonable limits, including, quote, the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings, end of quote. But a complete ban on a whole category of guns would surely exceed the Constitution's constraints. Even the liberal-leaning Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals Last month struck down a California law involving a semi-automatic weapons ban. Biden likely knows that his demand to eliminate specified guns are unconstitutional. At one point, he stated, if we can't ban assault weapons, and then he proceeded to offer other common sense measures. Those ideas are absolutely worth exploring. They may well pass constitutional scrutiny. Some of them appeal to Republicans who have expressed a willingness to craft bipartisan solutions, such as raising the age to purchase semi-automatic rifles to 21, enacting national red flag laws, greater mental health efforts, stronger background checks, and increased security for schools. On their face, these are rational steps that would have the potential to reduce some violence, But it's a hard reality that not every tragic mass shooting can be prevented. On Thursday evening, Biden described a crisis of urgency. He implored Congress to act expeditiously. Then he jetted off for his palatial pad in Rehoboth Beach for a four-day weekend. Perhaps the crisis is not so imperative after all. I'm Greg Jarrett. Listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up to the minute news, go to foxnews.com. 
everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.